Hello, my wonderful friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, it's great to have you along today. Uh, So this is episode number 36 of the podcast, and it's part five of our series that I'm calling God's Not Mad, and this is our series for Lent. And basically, I'm taking some themes from Brian Zahn's book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, uh, sharing with you what the theme is in the book that struck me, or what the idea is in the book, and then kind of sharing with you the spiderweb, uh, mad scientist concoction of ideas that that uh, one theme from the book has created in my head. And so today we're going to talk about the topic of hell, and the title of the episode today is You Can Go to Hell If You Want, and then the tagline is What I Think About Hell. And again, this is part five. Uh, Last week, if you didn't check it out yet, um, go listen to it. I actually got to sit down with Brian Zond and pick his brain about some of the bigger themes in the book, and um, he gave us so much wisdom. So go listen to that. Um, It is well worth your time. It's about an hour-long episode. He talked about the cross, atonement, hell, all different sorts of things. So um, go listen to that. Um, Some good news, some wonderful news. So last week, um, on Monday, I flew up to New York, and I got a hotel, And then on Tuesday morning, I got up, I went to my school, Alliance Theological Seminary, and I presented my doctoral dissertation to the the board, and I successfully defended it. Uh, So I came back into the room, they sent me away, I came back, Uh, my advisor stood up and he said, I would like to be the first to congratulate you, uh, Dr. Glenn Siepert. And it was such an awesome a magical feeling. Um, it has been a long journey, an exciting journey. I am an academic nerd, and so I really, really enjoyed the process. Um, but it is a huge relief uh, to know that this leg of the journey is kind of winding down, and uh, the new one, whatever that is, <laughs> is uh, is beginning. And uh, it was just so, such a great time. And then I FaceTimed uh, back home when it was over, and uh, Dana was with Jordan, and my parents were here, and got to share the news with everybody at once, and it was just a really, really exciting day. Um, there is some more work to be done on the dissertation. Uh, they pass you conditionally. It's, you know, it's very rare they say that they pass anybody with no conditions. So I have some tweaks to make to the dissertation by April 30th, um, and I said to them, they're like, oh, you have to do like A, B, and C. Uh, you know, by April 30th, I'm like, this is like the gift that just keeps on giving. Like, just when you think you're done, you're not. There's more to do. Um, but it's almost there. And April 30th, it'll get sent away for publication, and it will be in every academic library in the country. Uh, so that is pretty, pretty cool. Uh, so that's that's that. That's my dissertation. Um, another thing to think about and to keep in mind. Uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject. Uh, You can go there to support uh, the podcast. There's different 
uh, tiers or, or levels that you can sign up for, anywhere from $3 a month up to $30 a month, or you can customize the amount you want to give as well. And um, it's a place where you can go to support financially uh, what's going on here at the project. And uh, basically all the money that comes in is going into a, a pool of sorts that will be used uh, to pay for the hosting fees for the blog and the podcast. And then uh, the balance will go away for some future events that are brewing on the back burner. So uh, please, 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 if you can, at least go check it out. Um, if you feel that you, you want to or that you're able to uh, support the show, that would be amazing. There are nine people signed up, and uh, I'm super thankful for, for all of them and super thankful for everybody who just comes here and uh, listens to the show, shares some feedback with me, um, tells me about how it's encouraged you or challenged you or even made you angry. Uh, those are all good things. So um, thank you, thank you, thank you. And last piece of exciting news. In front of my face right now, there is a brand new microphone. I've talked a few times about how my, my old microphone was not even mine. It's a friend's, and I've had it for like four years because I used it with my old podcast as well. And uh, so now I have my own. The old one kind of moved a little bit, and it didn't really pick up sound super, super well. Uh, so it was definitely an adventure sometimes recording. Uh, but this one, this is new. My parents, the other night, we went over to their house to celebrate um, me being Dr. Glenn. And uh, they made us steak. And they surprised me with this wonderful microphone. It is it is quite a sight to look at. It is beautiful. It's silver. Um, it looks super cool, super professional. And uh, I'm excited about it. I've been playing with it the last couple days um, because I had it too close to my face. And it was like making this weird popping noise. And I think I might have got it to the right distance from my mouth. So hopefully it's not popping right now. If it is, uh, I'm sorry. I'm working on it. But the sound is definitely much more crisp. And uh, I love it. So thank you, Mom and Dad. This, this though, is episode 36 and uh, part 5 of our God's Not Mad series. And uh, let's jump in. So I can remember sitting um, in church as a 10-year-old, and kind of listening to our tall, very slim pastor talk about the book of Revelation. And I remember being, like, really intrigued by this guy as he talked about, you know, the dragon, uh, the beast, and how one day Jesus was going to come back and rapture all of his believers away. And I remember thinking about, like, how cool it would be to float up in the air this is what was going through my mind in church, uh, float up in the air and then like vanish into thin air and maybe reappear in heaven. Or maybe you just go up, 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 up through clouds and, you know, space and past Venus and, you know, wave to Mars on the way by and into some magical kingdom, you know, that had golden streets and existed somewhere far beyond the stars that our naked eye can barely see. And then I remember the pastor saying that all the people who are left behind after the rapture and or all the people who, who died without believing the things that the church doctrinal statement told us to believe about Jesus, you know, that he's the son of God. Uh, he died for my sins. He took my punishment. He rose from the dead. I can remember him saying that 
if people didn't believe those things when they died, then no matter how good of a person they were, uh, they would go to a place called hell, where they would be tortured uh, forever in eternal fire. Or if they didn't believe those things when Jesus came back to rapture his people away, that they would be left behind to endure uh, terrible times, known as the, quote, tribulation period, which would ultimately end in a, a lake of eternal fire that was filled with all these other sinners who didn't believe the right things about Jesus. And, and then I remember kind of like imagining myself floating high above the clouds into space, you know, past Venus, past Mars, all the while feeling this immense amount of guilt and shame that I would get to live in eternal bliss while others were tortured forever simply because I had somehow believed the right things about this guy named Jesus and his loving dad. Like, did my mom believe the right things? And what about my grandma? What about my best friend? And was it my responsibility to get them to believe? And I remember imagining myself floating further and further away as I watched people, some of who I I knew, some of who I didn't, kind of reaching up to me, you know, begging me to save them, screaming for me, please don't leave me, pleading with me to take them with me as they grew smaller and smaller and smaller as I went further and further away. And I remember worrying that my family would be amongst those who were left behind, or maybe those who were thrown into hell after they died. And I remember feeling very, very confused that this God, who the pastor insisted, loved me, loved my family, uh, loved everyone, everywhere, would also so, I don't know, like flippantly toss us away. All because we believed something that was different than what he wanted us to believe. Even as a 10-year-old, that made like no sense to me at all. But since it was what the tall, slim pastor with the suit on told us, you know, I assumed that this guy knew what he was talking about. This guy must be right. You know, he went to school. He's smart. He's got a job. He's talking to all these people. So he must know what he's talking about. Now, this is week five of uh, God's Not Mad. And today I want to talk to you about hell. And it's no secret that Oh, my thoughts on hell aren't what most would consider to be normal, orthodox, whatever. Uh, and maybe I should correct that. Some would consider it pretty normal. Some would consider them pretty orthodox, but not so much people from my evangelical upbringing. Like the tall, slim pastor with the suit on who talked about Revelation when I was 10. Uh, he would definitely raise an eyebrow. Uh, if he listened to anything at all at the What If Project. Uh, He, as many others have, um, insisted 1,000% that hell is a place of eternal torture. Maybe it's a place with literal fire and devils and weeping and crying, or maybe it's just a place of eternal separation from God that ends in complete and utter darkness. Uh, Whatever it is, though, he would say it's terrible and you don't want to go there And the way you avoid it is by believing the right things about Jesus, surrendering your life to him, whatever you want to call it. But here's the thing with hell, though, at least concerning the version of hell we just talked about. Uh, It's nowhere to be found in the Bible. That's right. I'll say it again. 
Hell as a place of eternal torture is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Like the idea of people burning forever in some sort of lake of fire, in some kind of whatever, whatever of fire, uh, just because they didn't believe the right things about God or surrender to Jesus is somewhere found maybe in Greek folklore and poetry like Dante's Inferno type stuff, but it's not in the Bible. I mean, we can take verses about fire and about things uh, like torture, judgment, whatever. We can turn them and mold them and we can shape them into those kinds of things. But I'm really not all that convinced that those verses actually have anything to do with those kinds of ideas. Not only that, but how could this idea of a God who tosses people who don't believe the right things about a son into fire, how can that possibly be real? Like, how on earth could this possibly be the way things work? Because how does that mesh with the kind of God that Jesus came to show us, right? Like, if if Jesus is what God has to say, and Jesus preached forgiveness uh, and peace and inclusion, then how does it make any sense to believe that God would, would withhold forgiveness and exclude people into an eternal fire, essentially give up on them, because they didn't believe in Jesus, you know, quote, say the sinner's prayer, get baptized, whatever. It just doesn't make any sense, right? Now, before we talk about what the Bible says and what it doesn't say, at least a little bit of what it says and doesn't say, here's a simple thought process uh, for you to walk through. Uh, and I think this is I think this is helpful. So I talked to Brian Zond in last week's episode. Again, if you haven't listened to it, uh, go listen to it when you're done here. Uh, But one of the things he said that struck me so deeply is that if people get sent to hell to be tortured forever because they believe the wrong things about God, you know, they didn't accept Jesus into their hearts, they didn't say the sinner's prayer, uh, they didn't surrender to Jesus, they didn't get baptized, whatever it is you want to call it, that means that every Jew uh, who was burned alive, tortured, raped, etc. during the Holocaust went from Hitler's earthly oven right into God's eternal oven. And if that's true, then how merciful is God, right? How loving is God? How graceful is God? Can this God be trusted? Is he really the, quote, good, good father that we sing about in church on Sundays? I mean, the idea that God would turn his back on people that he created— who faced terrible injustices on earth just to meet them on the other side of that injustice in the afterlife and then proceed to act on some, I don't know, warped sense of justice by tossing them into the fires of hell for all of eternity because somehow that satisfies his wrath or his anger concerning our sin. I don't know, man. Like, regardless of what the tall, slim, suit-wearing dude in the pulpit has to say, it just doesn't make sense to me. And if that's the way that God is, quite frankly, you can keep him for yourself. I mean, it's just that's just weird, right? And so, it's stuff like this, uh, along with my 10-year-old self imagining himself floating up to space to be rewarded for believing the right things about Jesus— all the while his friends, his family members who didn't believe were left behind to be burned and tortured forever. It's this kind of stuff that's really caused me to rethink my thoughts on hell 
uh, over the past eight to 10 years. And one of the things I hear people say a lot is that Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else in the Bible, so it must be true. And although that's kind of true, it's also kind of misleading because although he did talk about hell, he never talked about that kind of hell, uh, the kind of hell that we've been talking about so far today. Like, he just didn't. And if you're somebody who's reading this who uh, maybe I would call uh, a hater or someone who's like the you know, heresy police uh, looking to looking for me to say something wrong or, or whatever. Let me tell you that at this moment, I've got eight books in front of me on the topic of hell, or at least that talk about the topic of hell. And that's just eight of many uh, that I've read and come across. And so, like, unless you've read at least eight books on the topic, don't, don't email me hate mail, okay? Because I'm not going to read it. Uh, now, of course, I'm kidding. You know, you can email me if you want. I probably will read it. Maybe I'll respond. Maybe I won't. I don't know. Email me and find out. But, but don't, don't, don't just come here and, and yell and complain, okay? Because I got, I'm not just sitting here sharing this stuff. Um, I've actually read uh, quite extensively on the topic. I know that my thoughts might be different from some, but that doesn't mean that I haven't done my homework, okay? So I'm going to actually put a bibliography at the end of this and uh, there'll be some books there. But, but anyway, just don't email me hate mail. Maybe I'll read it. Maybe I won't. Uh, definitely probably won't respond. Whatever. Anyway, so uh, this is by no means like an exhaustive theology on hell. Okay, so I'm going to leave stuff out that I could talk about, but I'm just not going to. And like I said, I'll leave a book recommendation list at the end of this um, episode. Put it in the show notes in case you want to read more. Um, books that kind of present like multiple ideas from multiple points of view. Uh, my intention here, though, is is just to get the ball rolling and deconstruct a little bit of the traditional idea of hell and then throw some ideas out there that might help us reconstruct a view that's at least a little bit more in line with the tradition of early Jesus followers. And then uh, at the end, I'm going to tell you what I think about hell. And um, I will be very blunt about it. Uh, So get ready. Get ready for that. Uh, The concept of hell, let's start here. The concept of hell uh, comes from three words that are used, to be honest, quite infrequently in the Bible. Uh, there are some more, you know, intricate, detailed ones, but but these are like the big three. And in various Bible translations, uh, each one of these words is often translated, or I would even say mistranslated, into the English word uh, that we know as as hell. So the first word is called sheol, and that's a Hebrew word. It's used in the Old Testament to refer to the land of the dead. It's not a place where bad people go. It's not a place where unbelievers go. uh, But it's a place where everyone goes when they die. Uh, You are going to Sheol one day. I am and everyone else who has ever lived or ever will live. uh, When they die, that's where they're going. So Sheol is not hell. Uh, The second word is, is Hades. And that's a Greek word used in the New Testament in place of the Hebrew word Sheol. And much like Sheol, though, it refers to uh, what you would call the realm of the dead. It has nothing to do with heaven, nothing to do with hell. Uh, It's just a place where all dead people go. So we have Sheol and we have um, Hades. The third one, and Hades is not hell. Okay, so the third one is Gehenna. 
And that's another Greek word used in the New Testament, uh, mostly by Jesus. And it's actually a reference to the Valley of Hinnom, which was uh, south of Jerusalem. And that, that valley was called Gehenna. So Gehenna is not hell either. And really, that's it. You know, we have three words that have nothing to do with eternal torture, fires, whatever, that await us uh, when we believe the wrong things about Jesus. But yet we've somehow built like this entire theology and doctrine all around that idea based upon primarily uh, these three words that are used relatively infrequently in the Bible. Now, regarding the third word, I want to spend a little bit of time here, um, Gehenna, Brian Zond in his book, uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, he says this, this is a quote. He says, the valley of the shadow of death had been the infamous site where children were sacrificed as burnt offerings upon the hideous, fiery idols of Molech. Uh, that was the name of an idol. Uh, later in the valley of Hinnom, it became the city garbage dump, a place where fires were never quenched and the maggots never died. And as a burning, maggot-infested garbage dump, the Valley of Hinnom, transliterated from Hebrew uh, to the Greek word Gehenna, became a primary source for imagining hellish judgment. Now, the reality is that much of the time when Jesus used the word hell, and he was talking about destruction and things like that, he was using the word Gehenna. And so he wasn't referring to some kind of a hell that would be experienced after death as a result of not believing in him or saying the sinner's prayer, surrendering to him, whatever. Rather, he was referring to a literal hell in this life, right here, right now, and using a smoldering, maggot-infested garbage dump as a visual picture. Let's look at an example. Uh, Matthew 23, Jesus says, um, quite a lengthy discourse, but then he says this, unless you repent, you will all be destroyed in the same way. Now, I was always taught that in this verse and other ones like it, Jesus was talking about people being sent to hell to be destroyed or tortured or whatever because of their refusal to repent of their sins, accept Jesus into their lives as their Lord and Savior, surrender to his ways and change their lives around. Right? Stop sleeping around, stop drinking too much, stop doing this, stop cursing so much, stop doing drugs, etc. But, but here's the thing. In the context of this passage, Jesus wasn't talking about what happens when people die. Rather, he was talking about what can happen to people right now in this life when they choose to live differently than the way that he modeled. Okay, let me explain. Remember, Jesus lived in a time and in a place where uh, the Jews were wanting a stage of rebellion or a revolution of sorts against um, her enemy, the Roman Empire. And I talked a lot about that last year in my Medium blog, and I think it's still up. So I'll, I'll throw a link in the show notes. You can go read more about it. But they were expecting a Messiah to come, like on a white horse of sorts. Uh, who would raise up this army, overthrow the enemies of Israel once and for all, right? Because they were sick and tired of being kicked around, uh, sick of being under the boot of the Roman Empire, uh, sick of always being at the bottom of the pile, sick of being pushed around um, by people who were bigger than them. And so they expected the Messiah was going to come. He'd be the next King David, the next, you know, great warlord who would lead them into victory after victory after victory and put Israel back um, on top once again. 
But, but Jesus, as we know, he came to show them another way, right? It was a way of love, a way of forgiveness for the enemy, a way of praying for the enemy, a way of radical grace, a way of radical inclusion. And so what Jesus was saying to his listeners wasn't, hey, if you don't repent and believe in me, then you're going to go to hell when you die. Uh, Rather, he was saying, unless you rethink everything that you're planning to do and wanting to do and embrace the Sermon on the Mount that I dropped on you like a few pages back, unless you abandon your ridiculous and somewhat laughable idea of a violent revolution against this massive empire, you're all going to die by the Roman sword. Buildings are going to collapse and there is going to be a lot of fire. Because they're going to come in here and level this place to the ground like they do and make it nothing more than an extension of that maggot-infested, fiery garbage dump that you call Gehenna over there. And almost prophetically, that's exactly what happened about 40 years after Jesus lived. In about 70-ish AD, the Romans invaded the city. Scholars say they killed about a half a million people literally catapulted 100-pound hailstone-like boulders onto the city and then literally threw human bodies into Gehenna, hell, uh, the burning trash dump that was on the south end of Jerusalem. Crazy, right? In his commentary, uh, a commentary that's written by a guy named John Lightfoot, he comments on the Valley of Hinnom, and he says that Gehenna was... Uh, This is a quote, the common sink of the whole city where filth and all kinds of nastiness met. It was probably the common burying place of the city. And there was also a continual fire whereby bones and other filthy things were consumed lest they might offend or affect the rest of the city. Now, scholars say that this was a place where unclean corpses were discarded. So it was almost like a burial ground where they would just throw bodies into this fire And the fire continuously burned, and maggots always had something there to eat. But when we miss this context, right, it's pretty easy to assume that Jesus, the guy who, quote, talked more about hell than anybody else, talks about being destroyed and having people thrown into hell um, as a reference to some future event that's going to take place in the afterlife, right? When we miss this context, I think it's easy to misunderstand or misinterpret, misapply, whatever, uh, the words of Jesus. He's not saying those things, right? Instead, he was giving his contemporary listeners what I would say is a very real visual picture of what would happen to them and their families in their lifetime if they chose to continue living in rebellion to the life of love and forgiveness and humility uh, that he had called them to. Now, let's hit the pause button there. Because, however... Uh, there were times that he did refer to the afterlife. And there were times that he referred to judgment in the afterlife. A judgment, though, that was often reserved not really for people who didn't believe right, but more so for people who refused to live the life of grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness that he came to model. Right? Like his harshest words, go read the Gospels, his harshest words were typically reserved not for those that we might consider sinners, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, or even his own murderers, 
But for church leaders who thought they had it all together and pointed their finger and condemned and shamed everyone who they thought were not as good as them. In his book, um, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, a guy named Brad Jersak talks about how in the time of Jesus, Gehenna was thought to be a visual representation of something that might exist in the afterlife. He says that uh, like opinions varied and there was no single teaching or idea on the topic. In a typical you know, Jewish fashion, people weren't really interested in having the right answer or, or point of view, but they were most interested in dialoguing and conversing and wrestling with this stuff because they believed that it was in the dialogue that God would ultimately be found. And so in all of those dialogues, uh, Jersak says that there were four general themes that would emerge um, that were present in most of the teachings regardless uh, or regarding this topic, regardless of who the rabbi was who held the point of view. Okay, so four key themes that I want to share with you uh, real quick. Number one, they believe that Gehenna was a metaphor for hell. So the garbage dump was a, a, a metaphor for hell, which was a, a literal location in the afterlife. Second theme is that Gehenna uh, can have a time limit uh, after which suffering would end and either restoration or full annihilation or destruction would occur. So either the person would be restored or completely obliterated out of history. Okay. Third idea is that Gehenna can have an exit where one can actually be released due to good deeds or acts of justice on behalf of the poor in the afterlife. And then number four, uh, Gehenna can be can be cleansing, in that it's not just for uh, punishment, but also for like purification reasons, getting somebody ready. Uh, for power, uh, paradise or kingdom living. So kind of weeding this stuff out of their life, burning it away that doesn't fit into the kingdom. And, and I point these four things out because a lot of people that I've spoken to regarding this topic um, want to brush aside the historical, maybe I would call them nuances that I mentioned uh, previously concerning Jesus's words about the impending doom upon the nation of Israel and instead, they want to kind of insist that his words uh, that are translated into hell are referring to this place of actual judgment and torment in the afterlife. And, and fine, even if even though I don't agree with that, and, and I do think it's it's a stretch and maybe even a little bit ridiculous, I'll run with it for a moment. Okay, we, we can say that that's the case. It's a literal place of judgment. But here's the thing. If we're going to go down that road, then we've got to realize that the topic of judgment and suffering and flames in the afterlife was much, much different uh, back then than what the typical fundamental conservative evangelical church might teach today. To, to the rabbis of Jesus's day and the early followers of Jesus, it wasn't so much a place of torture where there was no way out, but a place that had a time limit, a place that if it did exist, had an exit plan. Um, a place that, if it did exist, was used to prepare its inhabitants for paradise. In other words, if hell is a place of suffering in the afterlife, then it's not necessarily eternal. And it's not necessarily a place where people are written off forever by God. Rather, it very well may be a place where the fires burn away the anti-kingdom ways in our lives to prepare people for eternal kingdom living. 
That was what the earlier followers of Jesus assumed. Ideas and beliefs that, quite frankly, uh, got lost somewhere down the line of history. And so, where do I stand on all of this? What do I think? Uh, Obviously, like I said before, there's so much to mention. um, And so much that I, I didn't talk about. Um, that I could, I just, there's just not time, right? I barely scratched the surface of this stuff in this episode. Uh, But as I said earlier, you know, there's tons and tons of stuff I left out. And and I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't claim to have the best understanding. And I certainly don't think that my understanding um, answers all of the questions or leaves no other questions to be asked. Obviously, there are tons of questions, right? Tons and tons. Instead, I'm at a place in my life where I'm kind of content in saying that I'm merely one person in a history of literally trillions and trillions of people who is on a journey with the divine. And as someone who has followed the ways of Jesus for 25 years of my life and studied his life and this topic in many different settings, personally, um, devotionally, educationally, academically, Um, in conversation with people, I've come to believe that no one is going to spend eternity suffering in hell. I don't believe that anybody, anybody, is going to spend eternity apart from God. And I don't believe that anybody's going to face torture or shame or grief in the afterlife because they believed the wrong things about Jesus. Right? God is not an angry deity Uh, who demands that uh, blood be sacrificed in order to satisfy his anger, or that blood be shed, I should say, in order to uh, satisfy his anger. And Jesus' blood wasn't shed so that by believing in him, we could be covered with that blood and somehow like slip past God's anger into heavenly eternal bliss, right? Like Jesus' blood was not like the um, invisibility cloak in Harry Potter, right? Like we don't just slip on the blood. We don't cover ourselves in Jesus's blood. And then we slip by God's anger and we get to live in heaven for all of eternity, right? That's not what this is about. Rather, I believe in an afterlife, uh, in an eternity where all of the prodigals come home. And I believe that such a place will be a literal living hell Uh, for people who can't wrap their minds around why in the world God would possibly let those people in. I imagine uh, an afterlife to be almost like the the home of the prodigal father. Uh, Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of a younger brother who left home and blew his inheritance on what Jesus called like wild living. All the while, the older son stayed home and continued to work really hard for his dad. And in the end of the story, though, the younger, sinful, you know, good-for-nothing son came home, um, and the father threw him a party. All the while, the older, you know, goody-goody brother stood outside the house and complained that someone like his brother was worth celebrating, right? I can't believe that this guy's getting a party. I've stayed here my whole life and worked for you, blah, blah, blah. The prodigal son was in heavenly bliss inside his father's house, while the older son, who was invited but chose not to come, stood outside in his own living hell. I think that's what the afterlife is going to be like. Paul once said that God desires 
all people to be saved. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm audacious enough and radical enough to think that that God is going to get what God wants. Right? Like I believe that God's love will win in the end. And I believe that the radiance of his amazing grace will ultimately draw all people to himself, just as Jesus promised in John chapter 12. And that a day is going to come where everything in the cosmos, everything in the entire universe is going to be the way that the divine creator originally intended it to be. Now, all that to say, I do believe in judgment, right? Because I don't think that people get to just run around, do whatever they want, and there's no consequences for this. I believe that Hitler has to face the consequences for his actions. And I believe that you do as well, and I believe that I do, and I believe that everyone else does, regardless of what those um, actions were or are. Whatever that judgment is, though, whatever it looks like, I think that it's it's probably best reflected not in Dante's Inferno kind of stuff, but in Jesus's words from a place like Mark chapter 9. Uh, he said this, he said, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Um, it is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Uh, the word there again is Gehenna, where the worms that eat uh, do not die and the fire is never quenched. Then he says this, everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. Now, Jesus said it, right? Not me. Everyone will be salted with fire. In other words, nobody's off the hook. Whatever lies on the other side of this life, whatever happens when we close our eyes on this world and then open them in the next, I think that the the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the desert in the book of Exodus, I think that pillar of fire, which is God, is waiting for us. But not with anger, right? Not with wrath, not with revenge, but with fiery arms wide open. Tears in his eyes. A quivering bottom lip. A smile on his face. Tears running down his cheeks, down on his knees. Inviting us to fall into the heat of his embrace so that all of our, our, our mistakes, all of our worldly baggage, All the diseases, the sicknesses, the pride, the hatred, the pain, the shame, the fear, all the horrors that we've experienced, all the baggage that we carry, all of the things that don't have a place in this kingdom can be slowly burned away so that room can be made for us to grow and to flourish in his kingdom as the people that he created us to be, the beautiful people that he has never, ever, ever given up on. Now, some of us might need to spend a day in his embrace. Some of us might need a thousand years in his embrace to get rid of all the stuff. But for however long it takes, I believe that he will hold us and he will never let go. I think that, I think that's the kind of God that we follow. I think that's the kind of God who created the universe. I think that's the kind of God that Jesus modeled for us, right? A God who has built a table where everyone is welcome, no one is turned away, and a spot is forever reserved for you. Ah, This is episode number 36, uh, part five of the God's Not Mad series. 
I hope it encouraged you. I hope it challenged you. And I hope it made you think about or rethink about this very, very important topic. Uh, Much love to you, my friends, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.